Welcome to The Dark Divide, a podcast that takes a seat, dangles its legs over the edge, and stares into the abyss. This is the story of Amina and Sarah Saeed. The loss of any life is tremendous and sad, but especially those who are taken much too soon. There's something about the stolen innocence of youth and theft of so much unknown potential that creates a tragedy which is almost unspeakable. Compound this in the concept of danger lurking within the four walls of a place that should be called home, and nearly all comprehension goes out the window. The ceilings and floors holding dark secrets of betrayal and fear where there should be trust and dependency, emptiness or ugliness where there should be love. It seems so simple a fact, it almost goes without saying, that a child deserves a home full of support and safety. Unfortunately, this isn't always the case. And sometimes, the ones who have the responsibility to protect us are the very thing we need protection from. It's February 1987. Patricia Tissy Owens is 15 years old, and it's her wedding day. Her husband-to-be is Yasser Abdel Saeed, an Egyptian resident in the United States on student visa. He also happens to be twice her age. Patricia's parents were hesitant to approve the marriage, but after Yasser spent much time explaining that he had a lot of money and would provide for Patricia, her mother convinced her father that it would be the best to have her taken care of. The Saeed family had worked at the convenience store next to the apartments where Patricia's family lived, and quickly, they'd all become familiar faces. Yasser's the oldest of five children, and at first, Patricia had dated his younger brother Yasin when she was 14. Yasin asked Patricia's father for his daughter's hand in marriage, to which he approved, but eventually they broke up and she began dating Yasser, who made promises of grandeur and escape from a life she desperately wanted to get away from. Her family was constantly in financial struggle, and Yasser promised her that her days of being poor were over. Patricia wasn't particularly in love with Yasser, but she was in love with the idea of a better life. Yasser received his green card soon after the marriage ceremony, and Patricia grew to love him over time as they built a family together. Within 10 months, she gave birth to a son named Islam in 1988, a daughter named Amina in 1989, and their youngest, Sarah, in 1990. Their life, however, was nothing like Yasser had promised. They struggled financially, as Yasser occasionally drove a taxi for work which didn't produce enough income for a family of five. Soon after the wedding, Yasser also became controlling and abusive towards Patricia. He didn't want her to be around her family, claiming that Americans are not good people and he'd made a mistake marrying one. He would hit her or kick her and often, when she got home from work, he'd empty the contents of full dresser drawers just to make her pick them up again. He would often become physically abusive if she didn't want to have sex with him, and Patricia claims that during their relationship, Yasser had at least six affairs that she knows of, including having a daughter in 1987 with another woman. Allegedly, long before he met Patricia, Yasser had purposely ran over a co-worker out of anger with his car and killed him. Yasser's father paid a lot of money to get him out of it scot-free. 
Apparently, Yasser's entire family was wealthy and connected in many ways. Patricia always feared the power of Yasser and his brothers, with whom he was very close. She was enamored, she was scared, she was confused. She didn't feel like she could raise her children without him. Slowly, the abuse just became a normal and predictable way of life. The family dynamic itself was extremely strained. Yasser treated Amina and Sarah with completely different conditions and expectations than he did of his son. They were not allowed the same privileges to socialize, and dating was absolutely out of the question. He believed in the eventual process of selling off his daughters in Egypt to the highest bidders, just as his brothers had done. Once, when Amina was 16, he took her to Egypt to marry a 40-year-old man, but she refused. It would not be his last attempt. He was determined to keep his daughters from becoming like all the American women around them. The tension spread beyond the immediate family and into Patricia's, as Yasser's behavior worsened, especially as it began to involve the girls. Amina had told her grandmother that her father had touched her. She immediately called Patricia to tell her what happened. Patricia was with her sister, Connie, and they both took the girls to the closest children's hospital to be examined, as well as file an incident report with Child Protective Services. She left Yasser, moving in with her mother and taking the children with her. Amina told the police that her father had put his fingers and penis inside of her vagina and touched her breasts. Sarah told the police that he'd also touched her breasts, as well as putting his fingers inside of her vagina and rectum. The girls had explained that they were terrified of their father and uncles. They were powerful, intimidating men who could make people disappear in one way or another if they had to. Unfortunately, the examination brought no physical evidence. Yasser began calling Patricia's mother's house nonstop, all hours of the day and night, manipulating her with different tactics in order to prevent him from going to jail. Eventually, the girls were told to say that it didn't happen, and the charges were dropped. Patricia claims that her mother told the girls to say it out of spite towards her husband, and that she doesn't believe Yasser would ever abuse his children that way. Things were never the same between Patricia and her mother after this, who was angry with disbelief that her grandchildren weren't being protected. But Patricia was afraid of Yasser, and the possibility of him hurting her family. Believing that she could control the situation if she just did what he wanted, she went back to him with her daughters in tow. Amina and Sarah were lively spirits who somehow always managed to stay positive and keep hopeful about their futures. Amina is described as talkative and funny, a feminine social butterfly who loved the color pink. Sarah was the more reserved and quiet of the two, more tomboyish with a usual jeans and sneaker look. She was often talking about school and valued academics. She wanted to be a doctor and was extremely ambitious about her future plans. She also had a boyfriend named Eric, and friends found their puppy love sweet and innocent. In one home video, Amina has her father's camcorder in hand. It's August 2003, and she's giving a tour of their room to the camera. Everything about the room and the girls is so typical teenager. A person would most likely never stop to question the normalcy and happiness of their home life. Oh my god, I just realized I'm recording. This is my room. Well, mostly mine. It's partly Sarah's. And those are my mine and Sarah's computers. And our bed. 
Oh, here's Sarah. Um, she's on the laptop. Let's see. Hey, Sarah. What are you doing? I'm looking for something. Both of the girls loved martial arts and took classes. Their instructor remembers Amina best, having known her longer than Sarah. And it didn't hurt that her cell phone was always going off during practice, getting her entire class the punishment of extra exercises. Martial arts was also where Amina met her boyfriend, Joseph, and the two quickly began a typical teenage romance full of sweetness and happily ever after daydreams. The two became very close, and eventually Amina confided in Joseph about her home life. Not only was she grateful to have someone to talk to besides her sister, but she also knew that as long as she was under her father's roof, there was no way the two of them could have a normal relationship. She needed him to know what he was getting himself into. Unsure on how to handle the gravity of the situation, Joseph told his mother, Ruth, who eventually became close with Amina too, almost like a mother figure. Ruth thought their relationship was healthy and pure and wanted to support Amina in getting to a place where she could be safe. Um, she started sharing her true life story. I guess as time started passing, Joseph uh, felt the need to start sharing with me. And then that's how I grew to become, to know her on a more in-depth level. You know, I didn't really understand fully at the time until the relationship progressed and as it progressed, you know, she would tell me more and more just horror stories about him, basically. Joseph's whole family supported their relationship, even him marrying her to get her out of the situation. Eventually, she even had a ring he gave to her as a promise of better days to come. But making that happen was a different story. Amina claimed that her father had bugged her car and constantly followed them. Getting her alone was almost impossible. Yasser was known to also videotape the girls, often inappropriately, zooming in on parts of their body, making comments of a sexual nature that a father should never make. Among the tapes are also sections of film where he's sitting outside of Sarah's after-school job at a convenience store, making remarks to Amina about how Sarah keeps smiling at her customers. She has to, it's part of her job, Amina exclaimed. Well, she's in trouble, Yasser replied. Like young couples often did before iPhones and Facebook, Amina and Joseph exchanged letters as often as possible. They would wax poetic, make promises of eternity, and plan for their future together. Amina was always careful to not be too specific, or even use Joseph's name, for fear that her father would find them. And indeed, he eventually did discover something on her computer. Amina, frustrated with the constant lack of privacy, yelled at him that she'd made it up, that it was unfair that she couldn't be a normal teenager, so she was writing letters and pretending that she had a boyfriend. But Yasser didn't believe her and would continue to search for clues about some tryst with an American boy. After the letter was found, Joseph didn't hear from Amina, who seemingly disappeared overnight. Eventually, she emailed her martial arts instructor, telling him that her father had bought a house in Louisville, and within two days, they'd moved over 20 miles away from their home in Bedford. She also wanted to pass on a message to Joseph, writing, I heart Jojo, and I hope we'll be together again. The instructor gave Ruth word on Amina's whereabouts, and Ruth began emailing Amina back and forth. For a long time, Ruth didn't tell her son about communicating with Amina, fearing for his safety, as Amina claimed her father kept asking for his whereabouts. After one heated argument of demanding to know who the boy was, and Amina refusing to give information, 
Yasser kicked her in the stomach and then in the face. Her lips were so embedded with the braces she was wearing that they were almost no longer lips at all. During a later interview, Patricia said that Amina never wore braces and that Yasser was never abusive to his daughters, just to her. However, each family member of Patricia's disagrees with this statement. Amina says that on the way to the hospital, one of her uncles called her father, telling him not to take her to the hospital because he could go to jail. He turned the car around, and Amina never got medical attention for her injuries. Ruth and Amina often bounced ideas off of each other in their emails. Ruth wondering if there was somewhere safe she could go. Amina suggesting maybe the next time he left his gun out, she would grab it. Yasser took Sarah and Amina to Egypt shortly after, where Amina kept in touch with Ruth by visiting an internet cafe. She begged her to finally let her talk to Joseph, knowing that the depression and heartbreak Ruth described her son was suffering from could be healed if he just knew that Amina was somewhere out there, still loving him and fighting for their future. Ruth appeased. Joseph and Amina were back in contact again and making plans to be together for always. Unfortunately, as time went on, Amina grew more and more depressed with the state of her life. It felt like it would always be this way. Maybe she'd end up purchased by some strange man twice her age in Egypt soon. Maybe her father would hurt her, or worse, Joseph. Overwhelmed with the hopelessness of it all, Amina wanted to commit suicide. Ruth begged her to try and talk to somebody about what was happening and the despair she was feeling but Amina didn't believe she would ever escape her father's grasp. She explained to Ruth that as a minor, her parents would find out every detail of what she said. Things would only get worse if she opened her mouth, so she continued to suffer silently. During Christmas dinner 2007, Joseph got a message from Amina saying it finally happened. They were leaving and she'd let him know where she was soon. The next day, Patricia, Amina, Amina's friend Eddie, Sarah, and her boyfriend Eric fled to Wichita, Kansas. Eddie was part of a ploy. In those last few months before they fled, Amina began trying to erase every trace of Joseph from her life so that when they were finally together, he wouldn't be the first person her father would go looking for. They went to stay with Patricia's Aunt Jill, who was skeptical that she'd actually stay away from Yasser this time. And immediately, Yasser filed a missing persons report for his wife and daughters, and they were contacted by the police. Patricia agreed to call him soon, explaining that she'd let him know they were okay, but made it a point to tell police that she was sure her husband would be violent towards their daughters if they returned, so she felt it necessary to take them into hiding. As everybody was preparing to eat Mexican food for dinner, Patricia offered to go to the store and get the tortilla chips they needed, taking all four teenagers with her. When she got back to the house, she informed her Aunt Jill that they would be leaving and going to Tulsa. They'd only been there for three hours, but Patricia decided it wasn't the place to be. By December 27th, the group was staying in a Tulsa hotel while looking for a place to rent. They destroyed their cell phone SIM cards so Yasser couldn't track their location and got a prepaid phone to share, which Amina used to keep in contact with Ruth and Joseph. By December 28th, they moved into a rental home under a different name, and Patricia was supposed to be starting a new job soon. 
But it only took a few days for Amina to tell Joseph that her mother was obviously having doubts about staying away from her father. Islam, the girl's older brother, remained home the entire time. He would often call Patricia's aunt and sister and express that he missed them and wished they would come home. And Patricia's sister would call her and warn her that Yasser was just up to his old tricks again. This was just another manipulation tactic, to not fall for it, to not go back home. On December 29th, Amina's friend Eddie had to return to Texas for a DJing job that he couldn't get out of. He would come back to Tulsa in a few days. Amina's emails to Ruth and Joseph describe her increasing anxiety about her mother returning to her father. Amina's words painting a picture of a daughter betrayed and abandoned, telling Ruth, I can tell you things that I wish I could talk to my parents about. My mother says she loves me, but how can she? She won't even stand up for me. According to Patricia, they all spoke to Yasser, including Amina, and collectively decided to go back to Texas. However, Eric would later explain that as far as he knew, there was no way Amina was aware that they were returning to Yasser. Sarah agreed to go back to keep the peace and try to smother the fire and apparently did not tell Amina. Instead, Patricia said they were going back for New Year's to put flowers on their grandmother's grave and spend time with their Aunt Connie. Once they arrived in Texas, Patricia informed Amina of their real plans and Amina refused to go home instead staying at Eddie's house. Patricia is the only person who claims that she simply dropped Amina happily off at a friend's for the night to attend a cookout. On December 31st, Amina's worst nightmare comes to fruition as she realizes her mother is not actually returning to Tulsa. Amina knew her mother would also share every single detail with her father about what had been happening since they left. Patricia kept calling Amina encouraging her to come home and even having Sarah plead on the phone with her as well. Amina continued to refuse until Patricia finally went over in person to beg her. Patricia says Amina called her and requested to come home, but text messages and emails to Joseph and other family members show a terrified and desperate girl, confused on how to help herself and escape the nightmare of her life. She's convinced to return home, as Patricia explains that her father has forgiven them. And on January 1st, 2008, Amina goes home. Yasser kissed the girls with joy upon their return, telling Patricia that he wanted to take them out to dinner and talk, smooth things over, and enjoy the company of his girls that he'd missed. But Amina and Sarah would not return home. Yasser would drive them to Irving just before shooting Amina twice in the chest, who was sitting in the front passenger seat. Sarah was in the back, and she was shot nine times, she managed to call 911 before her last breath, screaming into the phone. My dad shot me and my sister. Oh my God, I'm dying. Their bodies were left in the cab, which he abandoned in an Irving Hotel parking lot before fleeing the scene. Irving 911, what is your emergency? Oh, oh my God, shot me! What's going on, man? I'm dying, that's what's up. Okay, let me transfer you. I'm going I'm to get, I'm gonna get I'm, uh, fire department online, okay? Hold on one sec, okay?
Irving Fire Department. Ma'am, are you still there? Ma'am, are you still there? All I've got is she's telling me she's dying. I'm getting... I've got a... Are you still there, ma'am? Ma'am, what is your address? Ma'am. Many people have described Yasser's actions to be driven by the tradition of honor killing. Honor killings are defined as, quote, acts of vengeance, usually death, committed by family members against female family members, who are held to have brought dishonor upon the family. Yasser wasn't particularly religious, but he certainly didn't want his daughters dating Americans or becoming too westernized, and it was a huge source of rage and shame for him. The elements of honor killings change in details with each culture or country. In Egypt, many honor killings occur due to reasons such as women meeting an unrelated man, even if it's only an allegation. And honor killings are illegal in Egypt, but a report in 1995 estimated that at least 52 take place every year. However, statistics about honor killings are unreliable. They usually aren't reported or investigated. The UN said that there might be about 5,000 worldwide, but women advocacy groups say it's probably closer to 20,000 a year. Honor killing is not sanctioned by Islam or Islamic law, but there are elements in it that definitely make women and girls more vulnerable to honor violence, such as having their rights and freedoms curtailed, having their sexuality controlled, and having to obey their husbands. Honor violence is a community-supported form of terrorism against half of a culture's population in order to reinforce the system of male power and privilege. It's important to be very clear on the difference between domestic violence and honor violence. And I think part of the problem is not understanding the difference, but also it's the fear of being labeled racist or culturally insensitive or politically incorrect to label a murder an honor killing. We have to call it what it is or it's not going to be handled properly. Much like their lives, the funeral was full of tension and division. The girls were both buried in pink caskets with pink roses in their hair. Joseph would attend the viewing, attempting to sit as close to Amina's as possible but it only caused problems with the family, resulting in Islam making a huge scene of rage and kicking him out. They were buried in a Muslim cemetery, which Patricia says was her choice. Her sister Connie and her Aunt Jill, who had loved the girls as their own, were brokenhearted about the decision. The Muslim cemetery was very dark and all the grass was dead. There wasn't any flowers. It was awful. I begged my sister not to leave them there. Joseph's world imploded with the loss of his very first love. He hit rock bottom and was admitted to a psych ward for a while. I mean, they had me locked in this room, you know, with all these like other crazy people, basically, and they were pumping me full of all these medicines and you know, all this stuff, just trying to get me to to calm down to come back to reality because I, I wasn't hearing anything from anybody. The only person that could speak to me was my mother. I mean, I lost my grip on reality for, for more than a little while. Um, it was just, it was just a rough time. I don't, I don't even know the words to explain.
Patricia moved in with Yasser's brother Mohsen and his family, thinking that a set of familiar faces would be a bit of comfort to Islam while he mourned the loss of his sisters. Connie and Jill didn't understand why she would still want to be associated in that way with the Saeed family, considering that Yasser had made a call to Mohsen right after the murders and also met with him in person, which led everyone to believe that his brother had not only been aware of his plans, but encouraged them. All of his brothers had sold their daughters off and sent them to Egypt, and Yasser wouldn't be made a fool in front of them by his defiant children. In fact, Yasser had called every one of his brothers immediately after the murders. Patricia's family believes that his brothers helped him escape and know of his whereabouts. One of his brothers is a telecommunications system engineer, another owns a transportation company, and the entire family has connections internationally. Islam is suspected to be somewhere in Egypt, leaving shortly after moving in with his uncle. He claims to hate America and wishes death and attacks upon it. He was adamant that his father should turn himself in when talking to law enforcement, although at one point during the funeral, he grabbed a microphone from a news crew outside and shouted that his father was not responsible and that his sisters got what they deserved. When his great-aunt Jill spoke to the press about his sisters, he left a threatening message on her answering machine, full of rage. During the making of The Price of Honor, a documentary about the girls, the director Nina attempted to talk to a few of the Saeed family members. Mohsen wasn't home at the time, so she spoke with one of their children. Later, Mohsen called Nina, screaming derogatory names at her, claiming to have contacts who would find them and kill them. After that, they did not try to contact any of the Saeed family. Patricia's family has many issues with how the police handled the investigation. There were issues with Sarah's 911 call, which was released in two parts. One part was 4 minutes and 38 seconds, and the second was 1 minute and 51 seconds. The dispatcher almost immediately put her on hold to transfer her, and missed hearing the part where she'd said that her father had shot her. He failed to follow even the most simple protocol, such as keeping control of the conversation and asking simple, short questions, such as her name, what happened, where was she, etc. While on hold, he wasn't able to hear the gunshots or the sounds of her being attacked because he was busy connecting with a close fire department. Both dispatchers watched the cell phone tower pings on the traveling car as she's dying and unable to speak. Sarah's phone records show that the line was open for a total of 42 minutes. The person who called 911 to report finding the cab in the hotel parking lot around 8.30 p.m. was met with police, but it was protocol to have red flashing lights and sirens on that Code 3 emergency. No sirens can be heard on the call. Irving Police declined an interview with the director of the Price of Honor documentary, and they also appealed to the Texas Attorney General to keep the official report on the Saeed murders confidential. To this day, it has never been released to the media. 
Patricia's family felt as if the police didn't try very hard to find out where Yasser was, and they didn't question Patricia, even though her phone records show that she'd been in communication with him up until the time of the murders, and in fact, had not destroyed her SIM card. There were other numbers she called in other cities that Yasser's family had ties to, and records also indicate that she spoke with him on the same day as the murders, only hours after. Some people want Patricia arrested, including her own family, because they believe she helped set up her own daughters to be murdered. And her accounts are inconsistent. During one interview, she showed a reporter photos of her and Yasser, one where he's holding a knife up to her throat, claiming that he said if she left him, that was exactly what she would have to look forward to. Another had her dressed up with him in traditional garb, holding up guns, a photo she claimed he forced her to take. By the time she was interviewed for Price of Honor, she said both of those photos were taken out of humor and that they'd just been joking. There are photographs of Yasser Saeed holding a knife to your throat. He told me he did that, that if I ever loved him or I disobeyed him, this is what I have to look forward to. At that time, he wasn't really being aggressive or anything. We were, it was just like, it was mainly for fun, the, uh, with him doing the picture with the knife. There are other pictures of you dressed up and holding guns. It was, it was like a rifle. He forced me to put that stuff on. Oh, that, we were like just joking around, taking pictures. Like, we went and like, he wasn't serious or anything on that. Even Amina's martial arts instructor, Miguel, whom she'd been emailing up to the time of her murder, was dumbfounded by Patricia's behavior. And then we saw the uh, mom on Fox News, I believe, uh, when she was interviewed, um, basically saying that uh, she wanted to, you know, find the dad and they were going to hunt him down and find them. And then later on, uh, seeing the mom on another interview saying how sweet uh, and caring and kind the father was and how he could never do such a horrific thing. Patricia has refused to take a polygraph, stating that it would be just a waste of her time. Yasser is on the top 10 FBI's most wanted list. His sister, Gada, also happens to be wanted by the FBI for kidnapping her own children and taking them to Egypt. Her brothers helped her escape to Canada for a year and then eventually to Cairo, completely undetected by law enforcement. Patricia was aware of the children's locations and even saw them in Egypt while they were reported missing, but only told the police what she knew after Amina and Sarah were murdered. Yasser was born in 1957 and would be 62 years old today. He has black and gray hair with a receding hairline. His eyes are brown, he's six foot two, and he was last seen at around 180 pounds. He's driven a taxi cab for a living, and he has Egyptian nationality. He has dark spots on his neck, one being noticeably large on the lower left side. He always wears dark sunglasses, indoors and outside. Said was born in Egypt and may seek shelter in communities with Egyptian ties. He frequents Denny's and IHOP restaurants and smokes Marble Light 100s. He's known to carry a weapon at all times and should be considered armed and dangerous. For Amina and Sarah, it was almost as if time was just beginning. 
Seventeen and eighteen feel like a slow blink, flashing by in an instant. If only time were a tangible thing, slipping through our fingers in a way that would make us pay closer attention to its departure. But maybe we have no sense of time when we're that young because we aren't meant to. Instead, we're stuck in the hypermania of the teenage present moment, drowning in confusion, suffering all the dramatics, watching our infinite time roll out before us with no end in sight, just a beautiful urgency to get to wherever we're going, anxious for the day when the rest of our life begins. That day never came for Sarah or Amina, who were meant for so much more than the brutal unfairness of a world that can take away everything you've never had. And now they remain together in death, just like they had in life. Sometimes the only safe home we have is the one we carry within ourselves. That spirit survives in every youthful wish whispered to a ceiling in the dark of night, a prayer for a better life, an escape route, a chance to feel loved and happy. There is a vitality still thriving in the presence of their story. Their survival had been proof of a love that held the deepest kind of understanding and faith, holding fast to each other in a way only a person walking through the same fire as you can. Love outlasts death and wraps itself around the memory of two girls still somehow alive with the delicate sing-song teenage voices bouncing off the light pink walls of their bedroom, determined, optimistic, hopeful, and in love, their gentle laugh still echoing out into the starry night, held in a moment where they still have forever. <laughs>